It's early February, winter, gray in the mountains of western North Carolina. I'm driving up a narrow, winding road, and I pass right by my destination. I think I just missed it. I'm looking for a bakery. I've seen a million pictures of the place on Instagram, and it's still unrecognizable when I finally pull in. It looks somehow smaller. It doesn't help that the driveway is blocked by contractors' trucks. Instead of wood ovens smoking, the saws are going. The bakery on my first visit is completely disassembled. A walk-in fridge is lying in pieces under a tarp. A sink leans in the grass. And yet the resident baker, Camille Cogswell, hasn't let that stop her from baking. Her home stands about 20 feet away, and she's put her own gas oven to work. Ever since construction started a month ago, I've been making coffee and pastries for the construction crew every single day. Yeah. (laughs) So they are, you know, they love working for me over here. And also, hopefully, they will be, you know, customers in the future. Camille bought the place with her partner, Drew DeTomo, about a year and a half ago. It sits a half hour outside of Asheville in the community of Walnut in Marshall, North Carolina. The property includes two structures, a light-filled house with wood siding stained blue, and a building from 1929 that's been used as a bakery for more than two decades. The one-room bakery has an apartment above it and a couple of hulking masonry ovens. When Camille and Drew bought it, they thought they'd make some cosmetic upgrades in the work kitchen. You know, maybe upgrade the floor tile and some faucets. But things quickly escalated. Right now there is a trench uh, cut into the concrete slab and into the clay dirt below it, all the way across the one-room kitchen. It may not look like much now, but this little building with its metal roof and ovens with more than 60 square feet of stone hearth has been home to some of the most exciting baking in the country. It's one of the places naturally leavened rustic breads gained a foothold in the South, where not one but two artisanal flour mills got their start, and where baker after incredible baker honed their craft. And now, Camille and Drew are making it theirs. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Hmm. A production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells the stories of the changing American South. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be spending a lot of time at a little bakery in Marshall, North Carolina. We'll explore what it means to bake in a wood-fired oven. How artisanal local flours differ from the stuff we buy in the store. And how small-scale bakers make amazing food with relatively little infrastructure. We're going to start with how this particular bakery got its start. It's gone by many names. Natural Bridge Bakery, Farm and Sparrow, Smoke Signals, The Walnut Schoolhouse, and now Walnut Family Bakery. And we'll hear why this place, whatever it's called, attracts bakers to try their hand with its two legendary ovens. Arena Zhorov takes us to Marshall. But first... Ready for cookout season? Lodge helps you savor the outdoors with cast iron cookware and grilling accessories that can handle the heat. 
Whether you're cooking under the stars or grilling for the neighborhood, Lodge brings you fan favorites like the portable Sportsman's Pro Grill. Up your game with smoker skillets and grilling baskets or get creative with classic Dutch ovens and skillets. Crafted in America with just iron and oil, Lodge Cast Iron helps you turn every outdoor meal into a masterpiece. Go to lodgecastiron.com to shop the full collection and savor the outdoors. For their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance and this podcast, we thank Lodge. It all started with Jennifer Lapidus. Jennifer is a baker, and she'd spent the early 1990s searching for a bread she could love. She tried breads made with commercial yeast and even sourdoughs, but nothing quite hit the spot until it did. She went to see a baker in California named Alan Scott. Yeah, I mean, I arrived at Alan's and came into his kitchen, and there's all these people standing around, you know, talking and all in the kitchen, eating bread and butter, and there's this beautiful loaf of bread in the center, and he hands me the... It was just, you know, like, really um, that perfect moment. Alan, who passed away in 2009, was a blacksmith-turned-oven builder and baker. His reputation is legendary among discerning bread baker types, and the bread was a naturally leavened Flemish loaf. With the current craze for sourdoughs, it might be hard to remember a time when bread made without commercial yeast was a novelty. But in the 90s in most of the United States, it was. And Jennifer was taken with it. She apprenticed with Alan Scott, learning how to bake naturally leavened bread in a wood-fired oven, and absorbing models for how to live, too. My home was next to the bakery at Alan's we were baking in the same kitchen that we were eating dinner in. In 1994, Jennifer started her own bakery. She called it Natural Bridge Bakery. Around that time, she also gave birth to a daughter. A few years later, she started looking for a permanent home for her family and her business. She wanted to recreate some of the same atmosphere she'd liked so much at Alan Scott's. I don't know, I was really very much seeking an authentic experience. I grew up in Miami, Florida in the 70s and 80s, and the 70s and 80s were sort of dramatically different in Miami, going from sort of a smallish town to like a million people coming in. There was also just this continuous rush towards consumerism down there at the time. It was like Miami Vice was on the television. It was like um, models and movie stars and a lot of sort of, a lot of, nose jobs and boob jobs and just like a lot of um, inauthentic experience. And I was looking for an authentic experience. She had friends running an organic farm in the mountains of North Carolina at the time. And she went to see a nearby property in the community of Walnut in Marshall, North Carolina. Yeah, the spot in Walnut just um, spoke to me. I mean, it was like, this is, this is what, this is the place. The property is tucked into a nook. The land slopes up, and a perimeter of trees hems the place. So standing in its center, one has the sense of being held. There are two buildings there. One she made into her home, the other into the bakery. Her mentor, Alan Scott, came, and they used his plans to build a wood-fired oven. And Jennifer, still operating as Natural Bridge Bakery, got to work. I was a single mother, so I was raising my daughter and raising this bakery at the same time. Her schedule was intense, shaped by the oven's needs, the bread cultures, and her daughter's. Finding time to work when she was asleep was a challenging thing. She would invariably always, like at two in the morning, I'd hear her 
scampering across the yard to, you know, and at the time I had a stairwell in the bakery from the upstairs and I had a little bed tucked in under the stairs for her. Jennifer wasn't sleeping much herself. Each loaf of bread was a two-day process. She'd light the fire in the oven at 7 p.m. and let that burn for 12 hours to heat the oven. She'd be up by 4 in the morning, dividing and shaping previously mixed dough into loaves. While they rested, she'd mill fresh flour and mix a new batch of dough to bulk ferment for the next day. By 9 a.m., she'd load the oven and bake through the early afternoon. She had a delivery person to take her bread to local stores shortly before her daughter returned from school. But before Jennifer started dinner, she'd roll the dough she had mixed that morning, preparing for the next day. On non-baking days, she'd buy and transport firewood. It was a never-ending cycle. Um, And then I kind of hit a wall at one point with lack of sleep, and one day just sort of it was cold out, and I opened the windows, and I threw firewood in the oven, and I went to sleep. And um, it was just like a moment of, I can't do this. This is, this is crazy. And I got up the next morning and like peeked in on the bread and was like, wait, you know, the oven was like this wonderful temperature and the bread had slowly fermented in the cool temperatures. And, um, and it was the best bake I'd ever had. The hardship of living in that place and running the bakery would push her to the edge, then ease off or even reward her with glimmers of enlightenment. Those moments helped her figure things out. How long to fire the oven, how to get the perfect rise. Each spark built her up as a baker and also helped shape the place physically. Let's put a little porch roof over the bakery (laughs) so that I'm not going out in the rain. You know, there was just a lot of like, let's figure these things out. So if you visit the space, you'll see there was sort of like a number of roof lines because each thing was sort of added as I figured out something else. Eventually... We added the second oven, which is inside the bakery instead of outside. She made other adjustments to make the place feel usable, comfortable, her own. And she gained mastery as she evolved with the property. Jennifer operated her bakery for a decade from the property in Marshall. In the process, she also started to focus more on milling flour— Eventually, she'd go on to build Carolina Ground Flour, a North Carolina-based mill that supplies both professional and home bakers with fresh, locally grown wheat, rye, and spelt flour sourced from a handful of organic farms in North Carolina and Virginia. But around 2008, her daughter was starting middle school, and she wanted to send her to a school in Asheville, a half-hour commute from their home it would be untenable to run her business with that kind of commute. So she decided to move. Coming to that place of making this decision allowed me to kind of look at the fact that I was feeling tired. (laughs) My memory was getting bad from lack of sleep. I was just, um, you know, I I did all of my own baking. It was a lot of work. She called her mentor, Alan Scott, to ask if he knew of anyone who might be interested in renting the space. One day, Alan and I were working on an oven together, and he got called inside for a phone call. He came back out, and he was like, hey, there's someone on the phone. You should go talk to her. And I was like, who? He's like, just go get the phone. And I was like, okay. (laughs) And I went inside, and that was Jen Lapidus. This is David Bauer. At the time, he was living in a folk school in northern Minnesota, teaching oven building workshops with Alan Scott. He was mostly a self-taught baker. His first love was really the wood-fired ovens themselves. But when Jennifer asked if he'd like to rent her property and bake there, he said yes, 
I had no idea. No idea where Asheville was. I'd never heard of it. I'd never thought of living in the South or in the mountains. Um, I just, there was, there was an oven and Jen had a small mill as well. And that was not something that like existed places. Getting involved with like naturally leavened breads made with stone ground flour baked in a wood fired oven. You know, like it, it almost felt like it had more in common with like making candlesticks or something. <laughs> but in the snug, timeless alcove of Jennifer's property, it felt natural. David's plan was to move there and just experiment. I would really just like live as cheaply as possible and try every possible angle towards making bread. It was going to be an experiment and I was going to do it for a while and I was going to see what was possible. Sometimes the experiments were inedible. Sometimes he made incredible bread he couldn't recreate. Then he learned to recreate it. David started his bakery called Farm and Sparrow at the place in Marshall. Like Jennifer, he also grew increasingly interested in milling flour while there. These days, Farm and Sparrow is a flour mill where bakers can find fresh, regionally grown grains like corn, farro, wheat, and rye. David's got his own place now in nearby Mars Hill, but he says everything really started in Marshall. Being in Marshall was definitely a transitional point for me. I think that I didn't really understand until I was there that this is something I could do with my life. Yeah, it's really kind of where my, where the rest of my adult life kind of like got its footing. The bakery in Marshall was a transitional space for its subsequent tenants too. A challenging yet safe place to figure things out. After David came Tara Jensen. I think there's something special about living in the mountains. It's almost like you're tucked into the folds of a quilt. And I think people feel sort of like free to experiment or free to be themselves. Tara's bakery was called Smoke Signals. And she describes a pretty solitary life there. But like in a romantic way. I had actually been intrigued with monastic life since I was a kid. I remember like asking my mom at a very young age, can I be a nun? Should I be a nun? You know, I was like, what is going on? <laughs> but um, this is just like this other way of being free is also not committing to any one thing, but like committing to God, I guess. I don't have a religious practice, but I think bread kind of became that for me. She'd gone through a bad breakup right when she moved to Marshall. So it was a time of recuperating for her, reevaluating. And I really just sunk my heels in and like put on my linen aprons and like braided my hair and just went for it and <laughs> uh, kind of lived out like a childhood fantasy of like, what, you know, what, what would this be like if I did have a monastic kind of lifestyle? And um, did a lot of thinking and reflecting during that time. But she also opened the bakery up as a classroom. Workshop participants often stayed in the apartment above the bakery or camped out on the property. I was also like a theater kid. And so I knew that like I, I needed some sort of platform or stage. And that's when teaching really ended up fulfilling that for me because I'd have my, my time alone. And then opening up the bakery space to teaching was like kind of having these little parties. And it was so fun. Like people were just excited to be there and we were learning together and we'd like have these gorgeous lunches with wine and bread. And it kind of 
fed that part of me that needed the the social interaction and just to share like what I thought was such a, a special spot. Rather than depend solely on selling her bread, she shared her knowledge. That was something where I felt like, oh, I'm I'm kind of putting my own spin on this. And that was really empowering. At the time, Tara was also thinking about starting a family. And living in the physical space where Jennifer Lapidus had raised hers made it feel possible. You know, she had lived there um, with her daughter. And so you would sort of walk around and like right in front of the the outdoor wood-fired oven, you know, they had poured the concrete floor and her daughter had pressed in all these little pebbles and shiny gemstones. And it just had a very um, enchanting, very childlike sort of playful energy to it. Those little like spots of joy around the property were uh, really wonderful to live with. And Tara says just being there, walking the same paths Jennifer had laid out around the property, let her kind of absorb the wisdom Jennifer had left behind. And that that could kind of carry me into my own, you know, becoming a mother and becoming a baker. Tara met her now husband when his truck broke down in her driveway in Marshall. They have a daughter, and they're based outside Washington, D.C., She still bakes out of a wood-fired oven on wheels, which she bought when she left Marshall. At the end of 2018, Brennan Johnson moved in. He was just two years out of college and relatively inexperienced, but in some ways, destined to be there. When he was young, his dad had taken an oven-building workshop co-taught by Alan Scott and David Bauer, Jennifer's mentor and the second tenant of the Marshall Bakery, respectively. David remembered little Brennan playing while they worked. How could he not end up at this place? And yet his transformation and self-discovery was different from the other bakers. My goal was to run a baking school, but a fairly interdisciplinary baking school. He wanted to incorporate his interest in art and writing and the history and folklore of baking. Brennan's first year there was a hustle. So I was way in over my head. I was just scrambling every day to try to make it work. I was up early getting the oven ready or baking and then delivering and then coming back to fire the oven right after the market for the next bake the next day and all the time trying to feed the starter and not to mention living in this very rural rustic house in the mountains where I was struggling to maintain that and um, fend off the encroaching forest and Um, deal with pests and um, try to keep it clean for workshops. So I was very inundated um, in what I was doing. That was 2019. 2020 was supposed to be the year he hit his stride. He had booked a busy season of workshops, and afterwards he planned to take some time off to relax and travel. Then, of course, the pandemic hit. He made ends meet by selling pizzas for pickup that spring and summer. But the whole experience made him grow up very quickly. I sort of had to leave behind that life that I thought was my dream and that I thought I was cultivating for myself. But I have grown much more interested in other types of food and cooking and, in fact, developed a gluten allergy over the last many years that I think I was sort of in denial of. He left at the end of 2020. When I talked to Brennan, he was in Mexico City finally traveling, doing some cooking internships, and working on compiling naturally gluten-free recipes. Brennan would be Jennifer's last tenant. 
But the new owners and occupants of the place, Camille Cogswell and Drew DeTomo, are in some ways following the same path as the bakers that came before them. They sought it out at a time of transition, moved in with their own dreams, ready to shape the place and let it shape them. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll learn how Camille Cogswell and Drew DeTomo made this place their own. Hey, everybody. This is Mary Beth from the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm here to tell you about a new podcast from Pineapple Street Studios called Borderline Salty. It's hosted by two chefs, Rick Martinez and Carla Lolly Music. They have spent years working together in the kitchen and have encountered every kitchen mishap imaginable. Now, they're ready to take on your tough questions and help you become a better, smarter cook and avoid the mishaps they encountered. If you've been looking for some inspiration in the kitchen, this is your show. Again, remember, it's called Borderline Salty. It's from Pineapple Street Studios, and they air new episodes weekly. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Remember Jennifer Lapidus, the previous owner of the bakery where Camille Cogswell and Drew DeTomo now live? She held on to the property for more than a decade, even after she moved away and refocused on milling. I wasn't ready to let go of the place unless I knew what I was going to do next. But her mill was growing. When she found the new building for it in Hendersonville, North Carolina, the plan was suddenly clearer, and she had another kind of sign. I had a very significant tree, this ash tree that was like, over the house, kind of over my bedroom there. And, it, you know, listen to the birds in the tree. It was just a very, it was part of the place for me. And, um, and it died when, um, during that period of me not being there. And I was like, oh my God, like I didn't even know that tree was sick. And I just felt like as a steward to the land, it, I, I was failing and that that property deserved someone who would own it and be a steward to it. When the property went up for sale, Camille Cogswell happened to be in the area. Camille is from Asheville. She grew up in the city at a time when it was turning into a restaurant destination. She was from a very food-focused family, too. The kind that plans vacations around eating and camps plum jam together for fun. Camille's mom told me that when Camille was little, she had a weirdly sophisticated palate for a kid. She liked blue cheese, for one. Camille says she was always food-motivated. You know, when I was young, I told my parents I really wanted to play soccer because my brother played soccer. And they were like, really? Do, do you, do you want to go after this? And, and they eventually realized that I just wanted the halftime snacks. Her high school had a renowned culinary program, and she took all the available classes. But even that wasn't enough. I made English projects. Like, I chose books that had food in them so that I could just continue to talk about food and, like, make uh, things out of the book. And, you know, I would do science projects where I would bring food in. I mean, it was—everything was always about food. I just really loved cooking. She tried college but left after a few semesters and enrolled in culinary school, where she met Drew. From there, she rose quickly in the restaurant world— She interned at Blue Hill at Stone Barns in New York's Hudson Valley, then worked as a pastry cook in high-end restaurants in New York City. Camille and Drew were long distance. In 2015, she decided to move to Philadelphia, where he's from. She got a job at Zahav, an Israeli restaurant. Within months, she was leading the pastry department there. 
In 2017, she was named a finalist for the James Beard Foundation's Rising Star Chef Award. The following year, she was nominated again and won. In 2019, Zahav was named the country's best restaurant by the James Beard Foundation. Yeah, I was just working really hard every day and trying to do the best I could, and I didn't realize that it could potentially be on anyone's radar or to any scale that people would be noticing. But people were noticing. In 2019, the owners of Zahav tapped her to open a new bakery and cafe called Kafar. The following spring, Food and Wine magazine named her a best new chef. But after a brief tenure at Kafar, Camille was let go early in the pandemic. It was really extremely difficult um, and also extremely surprising, um, both for myself and all of my coworkers and, and peers. So Camila entered a period of uncertainty for the first time in her career. She was doing pie pop-ups and visiting her family in Asheville. On one visit, she was scrolling Instagram and saw a post by Brennan Johnson, the baker who lived and worked on Jennifer's property at the time. He said the property was going up for sale. She was already familiar with it from years of following other bakers' work there. Me and my mom were just like, oh, wouldn't it be cool to go see it? So we made an appointment with a realtor to come see it on Sunday. And Drew was not down here at that time either. So it was just me and my parents, and we came out to see it and met Brennan. And um, and I kind of very low-key but excitedly like sent some pictures and videos to Drew. Camille and Drew didn't have any plans to buy a house. Before the pandemic, he was trying to open an Italian restaurant in Philly. Moving to the Asheville area was something they'd discussed, but never truly planned for. But Camille was so excited about the possibilities the place offered that in the course of a day, she and Drew formulated a vision for what their life could look like there. We kind of, both being in a place of transition, and uh, we were like, maybe we should just go for it. If it, if it. if it doesn't work out, it doesn't matter, because this is kind of out of the blue anyway, and we'll just go on with our life plan. But we don't really have any plans right now. So what if this is our new adventure? They decided to put in an offer. We called the realtor that had shown us the place, and we're like, okay, you know, we're ready. We don't know what we're doing, but, you know, like, let's go for it. The realtor called back five minutes later and told him there was already another offer. And Jennifer asked for both of the the parties to write a letter of intention. And so, you know, the other folks did and and we did. We talked about our dreams and hopes for this place and um, you know, that we that we wanted to use the what she had built here in a similar way to 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 grow a small business of our own that could nourish this community and that we wanted to raise a family here and you know appreciating everything that she had done and that we wanted to use that and and make it our own um and honor what had come here before Jennifer says when she read the letter something clicked for her she accepted their offer seeing this place you know, it's all under construction right now, but it's it's so special when you come here and knowing the history of this place. It's such a beautiful and formed idea 
but it's simple and it has a draw to it. It has, um, a, you know, a magic to it that, that you feel when you're here. It's those ovens that have then seen all of these other incredible bakers through the years. Being there, it's easy to see the appeal. I can picture the thread of smoke rising from the oven, Camille scooping pastries out of its belly with a long wooden peel, customers waiting in the grass outside in alpine sun. It's incredibly inspiring, but also, yeah, to live up to, I mean, every single person who's been here, there's been no duds, you know, like every person has been incredible in their own way. Camille says that in some ways it's hard to step away from the spotlight she's been in and start her own small bakery in a rural place with just herself and Drew at the reins. But their vision for the place is so well-formed that whatever pressure she might feel seems like an afterthought. They'll make bread and pastries, they'll be open two days a week, and have one pizza night. Primarily, we want to have fun here. We want to be learning. You know, we want to be um, on this new adventure and providing for the community. And if we're putting out that energy and also being receptive to, um, you know, the people around us too, then it's going to be, it's going to be great. You just got to trust that. (laughs) She's been testing out recipes on the construction crew. An apple pie, biscuits, chocolate chip cookies. Her parents come up regularly to help clear the overgrown yard. She's preparing terraced beds to grow vegetables, herbs, and flowers. She points to an old apple tree damaged in a storm. She'll prune it soon and plant additional fruit trees to use in her pastries. They filled in a pond that once took up the property's one flat space. She imagines people hanging out there and events. Her two cats wander the ground, sashaying in and out of the house freely. The bakery's getting revitalized, so the nearly 100-year-old building will have reinforced new bones. And plumbing. Spring is coming. Soon, everything will bloom. In the last 18 months, Camille and Drew have gone from having no plan to realizing a vision for the next decade, or two. The 10 to 20 year plan of like how amazing this is going to be. Yeah, that also really excites me. (laughs) Gravy was reported and produced by Irina Zhuroff, a reporter and writer based in Boone, North Carolina. Special thanks to audio engineer Bethany Sands. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Gravy's publisher is Mary Beth Lassiter. Additional editing for this episode comes by way of Olivia Terenzio. Katie King is our fact checker. Visit us at southernfoodways.org to watch films, read your way through our event bibliographies, or listen to this podcast. While you're there, become a member or make a donation. Your dollars fund our work and help us make more gravy. I'm Melissa Hall. I'm Sarah Camp Milam. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. We're past the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.